An Afternoon with Artform. Welcome to An Afternoon with Artform, where our creatives, cast and crew discuss previous productions. Our podcast may contain adult content and may not be suitable for children. Welcome to An Afternoon with Artform, a chance for us to look back and discuss the background to putting on a production. Artform is an amateur theatre production company formed with the intention of performing lesser-known, neglected and smaller cast musicals and plays suitable for a small venue. I'm Sheila Arden, the Artistic Director of Artform, and today we are discussing Oh, What a Lovely War, which we performed in 2018, a satirical and poignant comment on World War I, devised by the Joan Littlewood Company in 1963. Around the table today we have director Matthew Westrip. Hello, Sheila. Costume and prop coordinator and cast member Paul Stone. Hello. We have cast members Alex Warren. Hello. Ross Phil. Hi. Daniel Lawrence. Hello. And Chris Arden. Hello. Chris, I'd like to turn to you first. And I want to ask you about the board's decision to perform this piece. Um, we had been going for a few years with the Renaissance of Art Form. Uh, and we decided that we would uh, extend our, our uh, opportunities by presenting three shows a year, rather than just the one full-screen musical. So we were looking for a play, a musical, and a cabaret-style show. It also worked out that 2018, as we all know, was the centenary of the end of the First World War. And it also became apparent that uh, What a Lovely War became available for amateurs to, to produce. So we looked into it and thought it was pretty ideal for us as a company. It fitted all our uh, aspects of our ethos. And so we went to the theatre as well and suggested that we might like to uh, present that for our November offering. And it transpired that we could take the week which ended with the final signing of the armistice, uh, November 11th, 1918. So we we worked on that with the theatre. Uh, they became so uh, involved with us that, in fact, they decided to take us on board as one of their official tributes to the end of the First World War. And uh, it became part of the publicity that the council was offering for the year in terms of the celebrations. And they actually supported us financially as well, which is rather fortunate. Uh, I think it's a subject which, which we all took on with trepidation. And the key thing was to find a good production team. And uh, as we always do, we found the perfect people of the past, and uh, the rest is history. And in fact, the final performance was on. The final performance was on November November the 11th. Absolutely. And it was quite moving. So, our production team for this was Matthew as director. We had James Hall as the musical director, and joint choreographers Claire Goad and Caroline Essenheim. So, Matthew, what were your thoughts when you were invited to direct the piece? Um, well, Sheila, it was it was funny because my other half and I were invited round for dinner um, to your house and Chris's house, and uh, ha- then I read it and um, I realised that actually it was a good script and I probably wanted to be involved. Yeah, I, I, I'm always very keen to do shows that two things. One, I think I could give something to uh, and, and do well, uh, and that have a meaning. Uh, I won't just direct something because it's my turn or because you know it happens to be there and I've got nothing better to do uh, and when I was offered to do this um, it was something that scared me a little bit because it was a bit of a challenge to take something that wasn't entirely comic uh, despite the clowns and Piero aspect of it uh, but was exceedingly poignant by doing it uh, on the anniversary of World War One. let alone with the fact that 
you know, members of my family, members of most of the cast family had been involved in something that was so horrific and so awful. Um, so I did take it home. I read it. Uh, I seem to remember asking you, actually, if I could have some time to think about it. And I, I did spend a bit of time looking at it probably to see if it was actually possible to do. Uh, and then decided that I would be a fool if I didn't because that opportunity wouldn't come round wouldn't come round again. Thank you. So we had Matthew and the rest of the production team on board and then on to the auditions and we eventually had a cast of 14 for the production. Alex and Roz, can I ask you, what attracted you to audition for the show in the first place? Um, well, Matthew and I were doing a different show together at the time and he'd actually brought the script to rehearsal to have a bit of a read through of it and to have a think about whether he wanted to do it or not. Um, and funnily enough, one of my ex-boyfriends loved this show, so I had actually heard of it and seen it before. Um, and I always thought it was quite quite an interesting show, um, and I really like the music um, for it, and I liked the aspect of it being a really, really collaborative and sort of no, no stars um, and a really, really group a dynamic to the show. Um, so I said, yes, I would come and audition. Yeah, same here, actually. I think that's what sold it to me, the idea that um, also Matthew said it would be sort of quite, who's going to try and make it a collaborative process as much as possible because when it was originally written, it was a devised piece. So he did ask us to just give him feedback whenever we felt we wanted to bring anything. Obviously, we can't devise things when we're um, reproducing it. But um, I like reviews. I like the idea that you move on from one thing to the other and they're quite different and it's fast-paced and you don't feel like you know, the show is made or broken on your performance, you give it your best shot and off you go again. <laughs> and it's, it's something else comes along and, and you change. One minute you're, you're, you're at the end of a show sort of um, doing a puppet show behind you and you're being a bit Punch and Judy. And then later on you're doing this very poignant piece um, which is actually really uh, quite touching and, and, it's, and it's just the pace of it I really like of a review show. Right, Matthew, so you've now got your team of players. So what was next? Well, getting a team of players was interesting, actually, Sheila, because there, there isn't a limit to how many people you can have in, in this show if you're going to do this, this show. A lot of companies do it with a chorus. Um, a lot of companies do it uh, with a society. Uh, Artform isn't a society, it's a production house, so therefore we could um, adapt who we had in it and who we didn't. So we ended up having eight boys and six girls. Uh, all uh, sparing boys blushes, blushes, all six of the girls were leading ladies in their own right. So it was a, and I remember when people came to see the show, they were quite surprised that we'd managed to get all six of these people who would be normally in leading roles in one production together on their own. So we, put, we got them all together, um, and then I, <laughs> I got people to audition. And this is the other thing that's quite difficult. When you separate the script and look at the script, you realise that there's over a hundred parts in, in the show. It makes it rather difficult because as a director, you can't go to someone who's auditioning and go, look, would you mind auditioning for so-and-so and so-and-so? And they come prepared and they do that. There were only one or two um, parts that we had that for, um, Lord, Doug uh, Lord Douglas Haig, um, the MC who opens the show. Uh, but most of the time we did various other bits of auditioning processes. I then had to ask the company to be very patient with me as I then went and spent many an hour on my dining room table uh, with dominoes, with post-it notes stuck to the back of them representing each person's name um, to divide the show into over 100 characters. 
and it's not even divided into scenes, so I had to do the same with the, um, the show as well. For the simple reason that if you're doing this, you've got to work out how to get people on and off um, with enough time to, to change, to put on a costume, um, and also so that it isn't just Roz, you know, for 20 minutes and then not doing anything for an hour and a half, so that it separates it out and you play to certain people's strengths. So we had a number of people, when I asked, could anybody do an Irish accent, um, and nobody put their hands up, and I went, fantastic, you three boys will do. Um, so a chap called Shane will love me forever for the fact that his Irish accent, he always convinced, was more South African than anything else. Um, so you, you, you do that. So we have to divide them up like that, and therefore we then divided up the rehearsals uh, in that process. So it's not a, because it is, as Ross says, a review-type show, um, you have to do it in that way. Uh, and then because it was the anniversary of the show itself, taking Joan Littlewood's idea of it being a review show and um, being collaborative, as Ros mentioned. I also got the cast to go and research. So I got, I gave every member of the cast a particular aspect of the war to go and research. So um, Daniel, for example, had to go and research poetry, uh, war poetry, so Wilfred Owen, etc. Uh, somebody else had to go and research um, poison gas. Uh, somebody had to go and research the Battle of the Somme. Uh, and then what we did was, before the rehearsals, we would get that person to stand up and just literally give a five-minute presentation on it. Because you realise, a hundred years later, that there's nobody left who remembers this conflict. There's nobody around who fought in it. So we don't know it as well. So you have to remind, particularly younger members of the cast, you have to remind them how awful it was. Um, so... Yeah, it really was a collaborative process and uh, they were wonderfully patient as a company as we changed and adapted. Um, and I think we made it with the songs that everybody got one song each to sing on their own, uh, as well as chorus work, so that everybody got a fair crack of the whip. And just to say from uh, a performance perspective in rehearsal room, doing that kind of research means that you can ground everything you're doing in an understanding from where it's coming from. So that kind of research is vital because although you may be sending it up at certain points because Joan Littlewood wants you to laugh at the absurdity of war, it means that it's always coming from a place of understanding. And I think that's the ultimate thing that is going for truth because at the end of the day, what she's looking at is the absurdity of truth. So unless you know what that truth is, it becomes very hard to um, chastise. While we're there, Daniel, for any listeners here that don't know the piece, could you fill us in a bit about the songs and the music and what was used? So the songs are period appropriate. They are adjusted lyrically and things. Uh, it's nothing new to take songs in this manner to reflect period. So something like um, Noel Coward's Cavalcade, he used um, songs like It's a Long Way to Tipperary, um, etc and some of the songs in that are in this and he does that all the way through cavalcade by taking numbers from the 1920s the 1900s but in oh what lovely wars case it was inspired by um charles chilton radio series that combined statistics about the first world war with versions of the songs from the time with lyrics from the music hall and things that weren't necessarily true so you have this mishmash of the authentic lyrics and send up lyrics which there's one very poignant moment in the show when they do that with a particular hymn and so the songs have an element of not only truth and period setting but you're therefore hearing lyrically the voices of the age as they would be seen by the men at those points and then to take it one step further Littlewood 
also uses German versions or things like that because the war was so encompassing because it is a world war. So you have that. And the idea is that the either the sincerity of the song therefore juxtaposes against the brutality of the statistics or to mock the statistics. It depends at what point it's happening. So, but the music therefore always means that when we talk about a review, I think it's more appropriate to say music hall because that's the thing that it's kind of basing itself on because Littlewood didn't want to do anything war-based first. And funnily enough, I think, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I think the music was one of the first things that sold her the idea when they took it to her. They worked through the songs first. I think it's fair to point out that uh, a vast majority of the songs actually are reproduced in the old-time musicals. If you've seen the old-time musicals or, or, or performed to them, as look quite a few of them have, you'll be very very uh, knowledgeable of these songs in isolation. But now putting them into context and showing how they're actually sung by the uh, the combatants in, in the trenches it makes them much more poignant. Cast members, is there a song that stands out for you so that listeners can hear the titles of some of these songs? Keep Home Fires Burning, which Alex sang so beautifully. She's such a pretty voice. And it came just after a quite a funny, sort of slightly Victoria Wood-esque skit. And it's the, the juxtaposition of whatever came before. And then suddenly there's this rather silent moment and this one solitary woman having to be very brave, um, as, as so many people would have had to have pretended to be brave and possibly crumbling beneath it. And it, it was just very... I don't know how she also I don't know how she managed to do it because <laughs> us other women had to join in halfway through and by that point my throat was really crusty <laughs> so she's singing this really beautiful line <laughs> that's that's the song that I remember most I think that's a very good point actually made there was the fact that, 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 that these poignant songs come after a piece of intense comedy or slapstick and yeah. then it's that constant counterpoint that gives it the strength of the whole piece and, and as an audience member yeah. it keeps you on your toes a bit. absolutely um, and there was a great link between us on stage and the audience more, more yeah. so I think than an ordinary show because you know it means something to all of us, um, mm, mm. and not not that we overdid the point. I don't think we had to, but it was just you just mm. felt it. I think on stage mm. you felt this connection, this shared sort of history. Definitely, and I think I think especially on the last night on on the centenary yeah. when trying to get through keep the home fire. I've never been more stressed on stage in my entire life trying to keep it together just get through the song and it was it was very very moving right, yeah. but my personal favourite actually Roz sang <laughs> I did thanks so much I didn't sing it at all in the show but another very very stressful moment but oh, also yeah. a moment of absolutely brilliant chaos was someone put the kibosh on the Kaiser which I'm sure we're going to get to talking about the props and the costumes in a second but I had a box of props and um, Sheila very kindly was organising it backstage. But it was a moment of pure stress to make sure that every single prop was in this box for this fast-paced, chaotic scene to make sure you had the right hat on or the right prop in your hand while Roz is matching lyrics, singing yeah. away up front um, to go with the story and the lyrics. And um, it was probably both my favourite and least favourite moment in the entire show. It's, and it's funny that you say about the chaos in terms of that and then you get more uh, calmer numbers to let it breathe. So things like Roses of Picardy. But mm. my favourite, and it always was, it was that I saw this show when I was about... 12 or 13 and the one number that's stuck and it's still stuck and it's still my favorite is the rewriting of the hymn which in terms of its title track is when this lousy war is over which is what a friend i have in jesus is mm -hmm. that right mm -hmm. yeah um 
And I've seen it done several ways, and that number always just strikes either very funny, but funny in the way that you can't laugh because it's so brutally awful, or really quite sad. But it's the it's the brilliance of the piece where there are no props, there is nothing else other than the, the bare bones of what is being done with that number. So um, I've seen it done where the boys are singing it um, raucously. I've seen it done where it's done really sincerely, but the army generals can't do anything about the send-up the boys are doing. So um, that's the beauty of it, that balance from the frenetic uh, the kibosh to um, the hymn. And it's interesting because um, it reminds me of, of both of those because um, Keep the Home Fires Burning came after the hymn scene, funnily enough, after the church service. And to try and make it funny, because that comes quite late in the show, and you notice uh, as an audience member and as a director that the show starts off incredibly funny. There are gags galore at the beginning, at the top of this show. And, I mean, it's brilliantly done, um, the, the piece and constructed, because the, the laughs just just gradually disappear little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit until you get towards this the end and, and um, keep the home fires burning, and it becomes rather um, rather poignant. Um, and when we, uh, so for example, to try and make it funny before Keep the Home Fires Burning, when everyone was in tears in the audience, Paul, Paul Stone, Paul was in a, was playing the vicar, and I got Paul to wear comedy teeth yes. and, and make it, and make him so that he couldn't pronounce the Dalai Lama and pronounce it as the Dalai Lima and make it in terribly inappropriate. And for all our listeners out there, for a visual representation, <laughs> Paul managed to make himself look like the vicar from The Curse of the Were Rabbit yes. with Wallace and Gromit. So that's the image you want, that's what he looked like. Uh, and then when we did Kaibosh, um, weirdly, bef- what happens before Kaibosh is there is a cavalry charge um, before that song where the cavalry are gunned down. We left them on the floor on the stage. We then brought a sheet out and made these girls do a puppet show with those props. Um, and we did it like Punch and Judy. And then the boys got up. The sheet was then taken away and we were left behind uh, the sheet with one German and one French soldier who then read... Um, original letters that have been sent from the front to the respective camps. Uh, so it's turned instantly from uh, comedy slapstick end of the pier musical to poignancy of the fact that the guns wouldn't stop, the bombs uh, carried on going. I mean, that, so it's, it, it works And well. just to uh, preempt something I know that we'll discuss later, but musically, in terms of going back to the question, there was a big change that we did that some purists probably will argue against, but um, he's saying about the moving aspects of keeping the home fires burning. Littlewood then returns with um, uh, a more upbeat number at the end, but because of the poignancy of the date, Matthew decided to take it another way with James musically um, to have an impact, and that's something I think um, this piece allows is for you to work on it as a workshop should be. For me, it, it's not particularly uh, difficult to, to understand that the uh, the song that moved me most was actually at the very end of the show when we were just all stood there and sang, and when they ask us. Mm-hmm. And I think I wasn't alone. With tears in our eyes. <clears throat> and the audience was just falling apart, weren't they? They were melting mm-hmm. away because it was such a moving moment, very poignant and solid and very, very, very moving. Uh, yeah, at the end of the show, um, Littlewood gets the entire company to come back on and sing Oh, What a Lovely War Again. Uh, particularly um, the 100 years, particularly on the Sunday, which was the 100th year of the, of the armistice. I mean, I'd just come from, I'd been at a, at a, a remembrance service um, up in town and, and travelled down for the afternoon performance. 
it was so hard to do. I mean, it was, it really was. People were in, in, in tears. And what we did at the end of it was um, the chaps put their hats on the floor. They left the stage. Uh, we had a poppy drop. And there was no curtain call. And I asked the company, I said, are we happy with the fact that you are not going to get applause at this? Um, are you happy for not coming and taking a bow? And every single one of them said, no, it's absolutely right. And I remember, I mean, a friend of ours, Robin Kelly, um, and people were coming out literally floods of tears going, what have you done to us? Um, and so that's the whole point of it. The whole point of it was to, for that 100th anniversary, you really, you wanted it to finish. And it felt wrong in that moment to have everybody come back and claim their applause well it's because I think sometimes in theatre and this is something that all performers are guilty of that you can sometimes it becomes about you a little bit and there's a, a Japanese um, theatre practitioner who says that you should give 80% of yourself to the audience and keep 20% to yourself so that you're giving more and I think that was the decision certainly for this piece that applause would make it about the company and what we as a company I think the girls would probably agree is that we weren't doing it for us we were doing it in remembrance of them so the whole point is to it is about them and not us and I think that really shows that it was a collaborative ensemble Absolutely. piece and that no, one, no yeah. one wanted to put mm. themselves forward as a star or having more than anyone else and that it was a completely and utterly group collaborative piece mm. and and yeah, I think we were all very much in agreement that we didn't yeah. we didn't feel the need for it. Absolutely, and I think that was set very at the very beginning of the, the very um, the opening as well, wasn't it? So yes, uh, row row row, um, the opening opening number, and how it, it was very joyous, very funny. Um, you know, th throwing all that to the audience. I suppose us knowing, uh, perhaps people hadn't seen it before, maybe as well, um, what was coming, what what you know the. the, the this was the spring, this was the, you know, the, the fall before the war and, and the end of the Pier show and the happiness and the joy, and it was going to be sucked out of it. Well, they weren't expecting anything when I turned up doing my best Esther Williams impression. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we put, we put you on a little trolley, didn't we, that you could move your furniture with. A very glamorous array of swimming cats. I could choose any four ones I like. I also got one of the men to dress up in drag like a very ugly woman, so it was all, it was all you know, just you to set the tone. In fact, I do. Yeah. 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 Every production I do, I have. RuPaul's going to be calling in time soon. That's very unfair. Um, so we've talked about the songs in some depth, but we did have an orchestra, um, we have restricted budget, we have rest restricted space in the studio. So, Matthew, how did we resolve that? At the Catford Broadway, where we did this, you're right, actually, there is restrictive space, and Artform is a small um, production house. Uh, also, the, the, what, the capacity of the uh, Catford Theatre is between 80 and 90. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it's poor man's theatre, you could argue, um, uh, which, when done properly, is brilliant. Um, it's the audience to decide whether or not we did that. But uh, we decided that what was important with this was that, uh, yeah, we needed an orchestra um, because you need the bugles, you need the kit, you need there to be a little bit more of it. So what we did with the with the orchestra uh, was five, I think, wasn't it? Including the MD. Um, we bought a um, uh, Artforms Baby Grand electric grand piano in. Uh, we got the boys to dress up in dinner jackets and we got the girls to dress up in cocktail dresses so that because, as Paul mentioned a moment ago, uh, we made this like a sort of an end of the pier, quite similar to the film, um, the uh, the John Mills film, Richard Attenborough film. 
which, although the play is very, very, very different to the film, uh, I quite like that aspect um, and thought that would make it easy to set it there. Um, so that's what we did. So we put the, or- the orchestra shoved away in the mm-hmm. corner um, and uh, they work very well, actually. And it, it really helps to elevate um, those songs because those mm-hmm. songs were played and, and written with that sort of chamber band in, in mind. Can you then move on to the end of Pierce show visuals and how you made your decisions about the set and the way you wanted it costumed? Yeah, you and I went for a drink in Blackheath, I think, <laughs> a glass of wine in Blackheath, and we were talking about choreographers at the time. Uh, and you said to me, Matthew, have you decided on what you want to do for a set? And I looked at you and I went, absolutely, Sheila, yes, I have. And I think I drew it on a napkin and I was making it up um, <laughs> as I was going along. In, funnily enough, in the script, it tells you to do it, Piero costumes, which we'll get onto the costumes in a moment, I'm sure. But it says there are four blocks on stage. There is a projector and that is it. So we had the four blocks, we had them made, um, we then painted them black and white um, and dazzled them like um, they did with the ships in World War One to uh, stop the enemies being able to find them on the sea. Uh, and then we did two, had two archways made um, by a lovely chap called Eddie um, and uh, with trellis on, we put some lights in them as well. And they were on casters, which I remember at the time, um, people look at me going, oh God, you want something that's going to move around, it's going to be a nightmare. And having re-looked at some of my notes of this, I realised that those things moved around the stage a lot. They did indeed. Um, and oh, they yes. were used, particularly in the second half, that they were used um, for uh, the backdrop for the Emily Pankhurst scene. They were, they were then moved by the company to um, create tunnels for the Irish to go through for something else. And so we used them in that aspect to try and create some form of sense of movement and change to different scenes because as Ros mentioned earlier it's quite it, it, some of the it's fast paced but some of the scenes are difficult some of the aspects of it are quite hard for a modern audience to get and and if you don't know who some of these people are it's the director's job to help try and move them along so it becomes easier and more accessible so that's what we did we made it very simple and we had a cloth for, for the projector where we projected the pictures which are given to you as part of the rights uh, and the ticker tape information which gives you all the um, the facts and figures of, of the deaths and things, which going to the poignancy that everyone's spoken about, while that's happening, uh, while they're talking, you know, singing, I don't know, um, he wore a tunic, for example, and all having a lovely dance on stage, behind it says uh, 500,000 British men died at the Battle of Arras, no gains made. And you could hear the audience mm-hmm. gasping. And what was very interesting is none of the cast saw those projectors because they never looked back. So it was only once or twice that people actually see what was going on behind them and realising the, the sheer horror of the numbers and that were racking up. I'd say from a performer's perspective, and actually if anyone's thinking of doing this, it, I would possibly suggest doing the same. None of the cast ever saw the um, projections. And funnily enough, I think it was quite nice blindly being unaware of what's going on behind you because ironically you're echoing what was going on at the time that they were blindly unaware so it means then you can give yourself more in terms of being in the moment like dancing to the tunic number for that and you've got the joy and then for coming out of the performance and the matching the music without going oh god i've got to echo these sentiments behind and therefore you get that beautiful juxtaposition of the two which is what littlewood is aiming for so the projections that they were given with the piece, you can't do the piece without the projections. So no. anybody considering this, you have got to consider how you get your projector, where you get it from, if you can afford it. Chris, can you talk a little bit about Artform acquiring that projector? Yes, uh, as we perform in the studio theatre at the Broadway Theatre in Catford. And 
it is rather limited in its technical facilities, to say the least. But however, as as we've all acknowledged, an essential part of this production is the fact that you've got the counterpoint with the visuals and then the performance, the, the visuals that, that only the audience can see. So we had to consider how to actually project these moving images for the ticker tape and the and the uh, the slides of the carnage that was being experienced. So, so we actually ended up going to the theatre the management themselves and uh, seeing if they had any any ideas because it, is, it was such a, a quintessential part of the of the whole piece. And uh, by luck, there is a uh, a company that supplies the theatre anyway. We ended up actually having um, a very high standard of projector, uh, and also we had to have a special cradle for it for health and safety reasons. To, to hang from the back of the lighting grid. It's also worth saying that the projector had to be extremely high in t- um, intensity because it had to, the images had to bleed through the normal stage lighting but still be visible at the back of the playing area. So all those things came together. One of our board members, who was a bit, a bit techie, managed to uh, include the moving ticker tape, which is normally a, se- a separate piece of equipment, but incorporate the ticker tape and the... Uh, the images onto a computer program and that they could be operated from these from the sound booth and lighting booth so that whole thing sort of was in theory seamless. That's I think certainly it a main consideration if you're considering putting on yeah. this production. Yeah, you have to, yeah. Paul, you made the uh, the screen, didn't you? I did, yes. We were very lucky to, to um, have some um, fabric that we had from another society that they donated. Nicked. Um, and <laughs> borrowed. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. Uh, it was uh, dust sheets, wasn't it? Dust sheets. Yeah. They were dust, dust sheets, sheets from Bromley Plan's production of Sideshow, which had just finished before, That's which it. Matthew yeah. sat there and went, Ooh, can I have those? <laughs> yeah. but, but very effective. Very it effective. was in keeping, wasn't it? It was very in keeping, yeah. 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 Um, Matthew, about the lighting, what sort of decisions did you have to make about the lighting? Mm. There were a couple of things we wanted to do with it. You, you had to make it uh, the difference between the, the various scenes that we devised. Um, and to try and make it atmospheric as you do with every production that, um, or anything you put on um, and relevant to what we were doing. Uh, one of the things we did do, uh, which I, when I was doing my research for what Joan Littlewood did, there's a scene in Act One where uh, it's in the trenches and there are, I think, about five or six boys um, in the trenches the, in, on the British side and uh, she gets the German um, line isn't on the stage. The German line, um, she even says in her notes... Um, should be as far away in the theatre as possible as you can get for them, that person to sing Silent Night. So we put Daniel um, in the dressing room, um, back away from everybody else. But she also said what she did was she turned all the lights off. So she had it completely dark on the stage um, for this, because, of course, you know, naturally, in during World War One and out there, it would have been pitch black apart from the occasional lights. So what we did was we used a slightly blue hue, uh, and then we just had tea lights in um, lanterns that we used... So, for, I mean, it was a long scene. It was about a seven-minute scene. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so the entire audience were in complete darkness, pretty much, while we had this scene playing out. And I remember during one of the rehearsals, um, when we were doing it in the village hall, I went halfway through the scene, I went and turned the lights off in the hall. And everybody sort of panicked, went, what's going on? I went, that's what it's going to be like, boys. And it is so weird, because as actors, we look at each other and we get our cues from how someone's looking at us or how, you know, that's what we do. And the minute you take that away, fascinating, because people suddenly go, I can't remember, I don't, I don't know where, what my lines are. Um, so that's quite useful if you want to do that to try and play with that in rehearsal. But I'll tell you what, in that scene, the audience was so quiet, you could have heard a pin drop. Mm-hmm. They were concentrating, really yeah. in it. So the end of the peer show setting meant that you wanted the characters in Pierrot and Pirette. 
costumes as their main costume all the way through with accessories to denote the different characters. Yep. So, Paul, you and I were on costumes. <laughs> we were. Uh, it wasn't easy to find them, was it? No, no. We, st- we started off sort of having a look to see if we had anything. Then we contacted uh, somebody down in Dartford, contacted. Yes, we, we used a local costume here. Yeah. We got the ladies' dresses, which I think you quite liked ladies, didn't you? Yes, they, yeah. they were more forgiving than you would think. <laughs> <laughs> These white costumes. Yeah. 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 You all looked really attractive and comfortable in them, didn't you? Yeah, but, yeah, they were fun as well. Yeah, but you couldn't find enough we men's... We, we had a problem with the men's, mm, didn't we? Mm. Um, uh, I think... Our I went up to a costume sale as well to see whether I could get something. Um, that the there wasn't anything there, um, so we, in the end, decided to make some. You made them I brilliantly. Made them. <laughs> so we had a, we, I think we acquired four in the end, and you made another three, so that yeah. all the men did look identical. Yes, yes. Um, and there were a couple of scenes. Well, there was one particular scene with Daniel where um, the costume had to be um, taken off of him, um, uh, ripped off. And underneath was he was in a battle dress, weren't you? That was the only um, one we used in the whole production, wasn't it? The yeah, only full costume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, we also had um, some beautiful sashes. That was made by Alex Horner, I believe. It was. It was yeah. it, it absolutely well remembered, Paul. Uh, it was um, it, interesting because uh, in the piece, Joan Littlewood, in her notes, she does say to wear Piero costumes. Um, but you can you can uh, you can see lots of productions of these and. Um, Actually, what a lot of um, people do is they do it in full dress. They do it in full battle dress, in full uniforms, and that wasn't what she wanted. No. What she wanted the impact, doesn't it? Yeah, what she wanted. She was very, very particular. That in yeah. fact, she almost refused to do the piece on the ground that she didn't want any war clothing yeah, in it. No. Yeah. So, 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 and so, following that. Um, it makes it slightly easier, of course, because then you don't have to go. Uh, Roz, you're playing. 23 parts throughout this and we've got to costume you 23 times it makes it a little easier because you just put a hat on or a sash or something like that um, but what we did decide to do was um, and it's not in the script uh, and it was Daniel's suggestion so I'm giving him credit for on for all time it was Daniel's <laughs> suggestion um, that at the end of Act 1 when the song goodbye is sung and the girls say goodbye to the chap who's going off to war uh, we got Daniel in this costume that uh, Paul and Alex worked so well together on making in a strip costume uh, Piero costume and underneath was the only time in the entire show where we had a full military World War One uniform um, and it was the only time where we had a gun um, because there were everything else was fake uh, they were either made up of wood or fake bits and pieces because everything else was as if you know when there was a drill scene it was um, golf clubs tennis rackets um, umbrellas the whole thing was it was a play the whole thing point of Joan Little was it was children it was a, a comedy Piero show so but if you do it with just one little point uh, and you could feel the audience suddenly going oh god oh oh, it's really happening that's that's awful well, it's that glorious theatrical technique of shocking the audience to make them wake up because um, I have to say from a performance aspect I love my Piero costume it's the most comfortable thing I've ever worn I asked Paul to make me a personal one so I'd wear it at home um, but the um, the idea was that to not let them get too comfortable I think that's what Matthew was going for and it was so the idea was a reveal because they're sending the chap 
away to war. And so then to have all this just white and black and then maybe a splash of colour because you're wearing a sash of the flags to then um, be torn asunder down the centre. It's suddenly real, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what left the audience was just to um, shock and then to go back into comedy again. And I think that's the ultimate thing about comedy is that rise and pitfall um, and it, the idea had come from conversations because you were always trying to get, um, and for our British audiences, I think they'll get it quite strongly, is that Blackadder effect with that whole uh, stupidity of, you know, like boom, 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 what's the next line, boom, boom, boom kind of joke, um, to then end on that beautiful moment of them running. Um, and that was... Yeah, I mean, that's, address that. I mean, that's the joke in Blackadder Goes Forth, isn't it, where he says, um, is, the, is the plan of the war that we're just going to keep fighting until um, everybody's left, until, except for Lord, Lord Haig, Lady Haig, and their tortoise alum? Um, and I mean, that is effectively what it was. I mean, there's even a, a bit in it where Lord Douglas Haig, in the second act of this show, um, is on stage looking at one of the battles uh, and says, oh, no, it's fine, we must make sure we count, uh, we've got enough men for a, a second offensive next year. Um, but we've lost 300,000 men. So, no, no, it's absolutely fine. The morale of the men will be not a problem. Um, and it, it is, it is all, it's mind-boggling for us sitting in the comfort of our homes listening to this in 2021. You know, I know COVID has been awful, but my Lord, nothing in comparison to, um, to what these boys did. I mean, it, it, yeah, it is absolutely appalling. And so when you look at it and you use the, the costumes and the, the hints of that contrasted with the Piero um, costumes, it's really rather striking, which is if she did it and Joan got it right, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the idea was to, at that point, the interval is to wake them up. I think sometimes in comedy, people can relax, because that's the point, isn't it? And so at that moment is no, particularly, again, it was always on the back of the mind, we aren't doing this, you know, on June the 28th, you know, 20. 15, it is the 11th of November 2018. But, I mean, interestingly, because a question for you, Sheila, as well then, as well as for everybody else here, I was very fortunate that I wasn't involved backstage. How was it with... Um, I mean, Sheila, you can talk to us. With well, I certainly can. Things. So um, the hats which denoted the different characters, they were also multitudinous props which were needed for... How many scenes, Chris? 27 scenes? Uh, 29, I've got here. 29 scenes, um, and... Many people, Chris still has his spreadsheet of where he had to go for which prop. So backstage was um, a bit of a military operation, indeed. And, and we have to keep it quiet backstage in that studio theatre as well. So you, yes. that was a real, like you had yeah. all this very busy action and also because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the audience would hear us because they're so close by. Yeah. So there was, I don't know how many hats there were. We had tables that were divided up with hats. So everybody had a number in their hat and a number on the square because it had to go back exactly That's where it was. Say, the most important thing was that it had to go back in exactly the place we found it. Otherwise, it is the wrong size. For, the, for the, somebody else going and, and multiple people were using the hats yeah, yes. some, yeah, 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 some yeah. people yeah. use they'd come out and say I mean hat number five where's hat number five I've got a hat square. sitting here I've got a, a crib sheet here which is I'm sure every every male member of the cast had one which is basically saying where's this hat going to be which one is it now is it with or without a braid has it got has it got you know, it's just craziness about and particularly well, as well when you're doing because you're doing different army officers and things like that and, 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 and different ranks that you those hats were the things that were used to denote exactly. who those people Yes. Work. Yeah. And it was a real ensemble thing because, as I'm sure Alex can point out, Amros, they had to help the boys dress in all sorts. I think by the third night or the third time we'd done it with the hats, we felt we knew what we were doing, but it was still 
I mean, most of the time when we do a show, we have a laugh backstage and we have a bit of a chat and carry on. I don't think anyone had a moment to have a break and have a relax. I think while we were in the moment for the show, we were in the moment for the show and you had to concentrate and be on it the whole way through. And then you could have a little break at an intermission and then back straight on it. No one wanted to go on with the wrong hat. Absolutely right. But it wasn't just hat. It's all the other little little bits of costume embellishment. It could be a a sash. It could be... could be a badge or anything at all. I mean, I genuinely can't remember. It, it must have all. Did I? Was I helped? Did I just let everybody else do it? You dressed me at one point. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> I had the two glamorous ladies here had to dress me whilst I was singing in German, and we all know my German goes via Croydon. So that is. A... I genuinely can't remember. And funnily enough, it's funny actually. Only now talking about this, it's weird how what you remember about it that I did do. Um, props one night you did, because so I, I could watch it. Yes, yes. You, yeah. I let you watch it. I think it was a Saturday night or something, so yes. you could watch Krista. And I remember, and we were all begging Sheila to come yeah. back. <laughs> and I remember literally having a small panic attack because you suddenly yeah. looked at this going, "I don't know what's going where." So I mean, it is very funny, it, you know, talking about from the director side of it. Lord above, we don't appreciate what goes on backstage from um, you know set designers, but also from the techies and the stage managers. Uh, you know, I think it's worth, worth us saying also that it's not just backstage; it's also front of house because we had a front yeah. and back exit yeah. to yeah. the auditorium, and there was a hat table at the back and at the front and hats had to be transferred between the, the two by the front yeah, of house yeah, yeah. depending on the next person needs it and it was crazy. and talking of maps you need to be very good at ad-libbing if one of the maps goes for a walk <laughs> and your entire scene is based around it so you need to be very comfortable with each other hence why that ensemble feel is so good because there was a prop that went missing and the look of fear and Paul just mm. Beautifully, as a general, managed to overcover the missing map. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. What did you do? I don't remember this. Oh, God, I don't remember. Lots of rhubarb. <laughs> <laughs> I think I found a menu from backstage and used that instead. <laughs> but I mean, on the point of costumes, I mean, they were they were multi, multitudinous, as we know, but they had to be absolutely correct. And, and that comes down to detail of planning for each character that, yeah. that mm. was presented. And because we all played so many different characters, I was in 20 of the 29 scenes. And as a, a collaborative piece, yeah. no one had a massive great part because we just contributed in our own way. But every single one of those scenes had to have a change of costume or a moustache yeah. or a hat or a sash But or it's something. actually really quite exciting to be part of that energy, oh, isn't ta- it? Yeah. The energy and you haven't got time to be nervous about exactly. what you're doing. Yeah. Like, this, this, And sometimes if you've got less to do, more mistakes happen because it slips your mind. Right. But yes. yeah. Everyone's really focused. I really enjoyed yeah. it, yeah. And I think yeah. what's interesting with this is that I, I, I think originally Joan did it possibly with six and six or four and six she did it with a few less than what we did with eight and six so we did it with one or two more however I wouldn't if you could get away with it do it with many more than that no. because there is something so wonderful as an audience member watching an entire company who are in constantly doing something yeah. they're only off the yeah. various more amount of time and if you get that group of people together as Ros just said it's such an ensemble feel everybody was invested and we keep saying about changing costumes funnily enough we weren't changing costumes so for people that are used to quick costume changes actually you're not changing costumes at all but it is those uh, signs and symbols of what period Mm. you're you know which country you're in if you're wearing a also, funnily enough, um, if you were thinking of doing it, actually, because the Piero is our clowns and they're, they're a troupe in their own right, we never used anybody really to come on stage to move set or move scenes or place anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the set and the scenes were moved by the cast. The costumes and the props were moved on and off by the cast, which is a lot of pressure on the cast, but it also it means that it's a continual flow of the company. 
Right, well, we're coming towards the end now, so I want to now just turn to an original idea that Matthew had to connect us with our local community. Um, we already said we were part of the council commemorations that year. So, Matthew, could you tell us a little bit more about what you decided to do? Uh, yeah, I will. When we were asked to do it, um, because it was a combination of... It was Lewisham Borough Council, which, for those of you who don't know, is a borough in south-east London. Uh, and it was at the Catford Studio, which is one of the major theatres um, in said borough. When we decided to do it, the space... I think it was I think it was about eighty eight seats or something. Let's say eighty eight seats for 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 want of um, a better number. Uh, I then went onto the uh, website of the local council and I found ninety names of uh, lads. I mean, most of these were lads uh, from the local area who had been called up to fight in World War One. Really, I mean, kudos to to Lewisham because it was very easy to get this information. Not only did it tell me their names, their rank, everything else, whether they survived, whether they did not. Uh, told me where they lived. It told me what they did. It told me what they did when, before they went to war. It told me what they did after they came back. So what we did was we, um, with the help of um, of Claire Goad, uh, one of our choreographers, we uh, found all this information. We collated it together. We edited it down, um, and then we printed them out on individual A5 sheets. Uh, we then printed out little business card type um, pieces of paper with the names of all of these people on, and we did enough for each show. And when uh, the audience member came into the um, auditorium uh, through the sort of very carnival end of the pier type atmosphere, they were given uh, an individual name on the way in. It was my idea. I'm, I won't take credit for the fact that it wasn't an original idea because I stole it for if you go to particular Titanic exhibitions, they will do that. They will give you a name of someone who was on the Titanic and then at the end of the exhibition you find out whether they survived or not. And so we did that. Uh, and then when they came out at the end of the show... As if by magic, our front of house team, working very hard, had put all these names up on this big board. And audience members, through tears, went and were told to go and find their name on this board. And I, it is so bizarre, because not only was it exceptionally um, moving, because it really then pushes, makes you realise that this is not just a musical theatre piece, this happened, these people were real, uh, the sacrifice was true. We had people coming up to me saying... I live in that person's house. The, per- the person you gave me, I live, at their, I live at their house. Or somebody else going, that's a member of my family I didn't realise. It was an uncle I didn't know about. It was Paul. Yeah. 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 And you, it is so, it, it is so moving. And, and that was random as well. We just gave these names out to random people and, and, and people were totally moved by that. So if you're going to do it um, in a local town hall or a local web, particularly in the UK I mean you can do it, in, it wherever in the world if there's a World War One connection, find that information and give and, and let those stories be told because actually there's no better way of honouring these men and these lads than actually having their stories told and then people went and they, and they investigated it and they found more about it and unbelievable So just before we finish any last thoughts from any members around the table today? about the show any advice for anybody who might be thinking about it well actually one of the more memorable aspects of rehearsals was when we had our uh, ex-army officer teaching us how to drill and that was probably (laughs) the most exciting funny and terrifying and terrifying group of rehearsals I've ever been to but we learnt and I think we put it off what do you think Duffy oh absolutely Um, so it was Professor Jim Storr 
plug coming. Uh, his book is called The Hall of Mirrors, and it's available at helion.co.uk. And he came and gave, only because he came and gave his time for free, um, came all the way from Birmingham. Um, and, uh, yeah, he got the boys, because this part of the drill is not scripted in the, in the script. It is a page. It basically where it goes... Just says... It's drill. Yeah, it says drill. So you sit there and you go, oh, good. Thank you so much. Um, so we did. We got the boys together and we created about a five, six minute scene, which we ran and ran and ran and ran to make it faster and faster yeah. and tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, and he came down and got the boys to work out how to march, how to hold, how to stand, how to, um, you know, how to how to, all, all of that. Yeah. Um, and that was, I, I mean, chaps, was that Took useful? No was that useful, Very gentlemen? Yes. Yeah. So, thank you very much if you've been listening to this podcast and look out again for further Afternoon with Artform. Copyright Artform 2021